Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight is Wednesday, April 4th of 2012. Our guest tonight is Dr. John Pasianis. Uh, he works with Andrew Tatarski with uh, the Center for Optimal Living, and he's done a lot of work with young people and with uh, artists in relation to substance use and harm reduction. And before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnet. Network.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group that encourages any positive change in your drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. And for more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, as I said, is John Pasianis. He's right here with us. John, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing well, Ken. Nice to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in psychotherapy, harm reduction therapy, and these various uh, aspects of therapy? Sure, I would love to. I would love to. Well, you know, um, I received my doctorate degree in clinical psychology from Adelphi University uh, in New York. And uh, I completed a year-long fellowship at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Outpatient Clinic, which at the time, around 2003-2004, was located um, on 58th Street and 9th Avenue. And after, you know, a year, a year or two after fellowship, I got a position um, as a supervising clinical psychologist Um, at Cumberland Diagnostic and Treatment Center's Chemical Dependency Outpatient Program, which is located in uh, the Fort Greene section of Brooklyn. Um, And I was brought on to provide risk assessments, crisis management, um, evaluations, and individual and group therapy for adults and adolescents. I also acted as a liaison between our program and the buprenorphine program at Woodhall Hospital. And during my time at the center, you know, I I began to notice um, that a large number of patients uh, were not sticking to treatment. Um, They were either dropping out um were attending the program um, uh, once in a while and generally not meeting their treatment goals and objectives. And some were just being terminated for that. Um, and it was, you know, it, it was curious to me that someone would get kicked out of program for not meeting the objectives and goals of the program. Um, and, uh, but this was, you know, when I talked to other colleagues who were in the field of chemical dependency, this was part for the course in abstinence-based programs around the country, uh, which I think made up about 90 or 95% of the treatment um the type of treatment available mm-hmm. um, in our field. And 
No, it became um, became curious about that, you know. And at this point, I think I'd like to add that I also recognize that there were patients for whom an abstinence-based approach seemed to work. You know, they responded mm-hmm. well to that, and they seemed to thrive within the AA and a 12-step culture. Um, so I I was appreciative and recognized that. However, yeah. you know, there was about 75% of patients um, who we seem not to be able to reach. And my thoughts kept on returning to the to this large percent of patients. Um, and this concept of, uh, I was exposed to the concept of the difficult patient for the first time in, in throughout my experience. And, mm-hmm. and I began to actively really think about what we meant uh, when we used that term. Um, and I was wondering whether I was really looking at something that was phenomenological and, and uh, particular to the difficult patient, or whether I was looking at a co-creation, right, that mm-hmm. was per- perhaps emblematic of some iatrogenic effect that was taking place because of the treatment approach, right? That mm-hmm. a priority we expect within a month, we expect within two months that you will stop using or else, right? Mm-hmm. So with that, in, with that in mind, I began to really fall back on my training as a clinician, you know, and as a contemporary relational clinician uh, where the emphasis is placed on um, the quality of the therapeutic alliance that emerges over time and is mutually negotiated. And, um, you know, I... welcomed patients into my office, met them where they were at on that particular day, and really demonstrated an interest in their lives, you know, their wishes, um, and their challenges. And all of a sudden, you know, I was no longer looking at difficult patients. Mm-hmm. But I was looking, you know, I was seeing human beings uh, who were responding uh, to the respect and the genuine interest that I was showing them. So I knew, I knew that I was doing something right, you know. And they began to speak to me, you know. They began to speak to me about... Um, we had created the space for them to talk to me about their um, past experiences, uh, their current challenges. You know, they talked to me about their drugs of choice, um, how they felt when they used, and where they were uh, when they used. 
In other words, they began talking about the drug, the set, and the setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I realized that really my patients had these deep relationships with substances and that needed to be understood and brought into our work. Mm-hmm. Um, and... That's when I started questioning this old adage, a drug is a drug is a drug, or that you could never trust a drug addict, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what did people mean by that? Because it really was not um, true to my experience in the way that I began working with people. Um, and... You know, I I also um, recognized that I was probably one of the few people at this abstinence-based program that was working in this in this manner. And what I did at that at that time, I sought out Dr. Andrew Tatarsky, whom I had met um, a couple of years earlier uh, when we were both members of NISPA's Division on Addiction. Um, and just to kind of, you know, check in with my experience and get feedback from him on his experience working in the field. And I, I recognized that I was re- that I had, you know, that we were kindred spirits. You know, we thought about patients in a um, deep, nuanced way, and we, um, you know, what we saw as you know, standard treatment, uh, we began to recognize that perhaps this there was an issue with the treatment approach, you know. And mm-hmm. um, here, here we are. When, when he um, formed uh, or developed, it was in the planning stages of developing uh, the Center for Optimal Living, he reached out to me and asked me if I would like to be involved. And I said, when do I join? <laughs> and here I am. Well, my ex- that's a little bit of uh, my background. Mm-hmm. My experience, um, I went to a standard treatment a couple of times. And, you know, my experience was that uh, counselors were very much discouraged from meeting one-on-one with the clients, and the clients were totally discouraged from meeting one-on-one with counselors. Everything was supposed to be done through a group, and it was like, you know, there was no therapeutic alliance at all that was developed that way. Um, I did have one counselor that was kind of renegade, and, you know, I did meet one-on-one several times, and that was actually probably the most helpful experience of the of the whole experience, but I mean, people were very strongly discouraged from doing this. And how did uh, how did uh, they react at the uh, the place where you were working when you were going one on one with people? Well, you know, interestingly enough, when I was brought in, the understanding was that I would I would provide treatment to duly diagnosed patients, right? Our patients now uh, with co-occurring disorders. And what I mean by that is patients who have, you know, mood in addition to having substance misuse issues, uh, they also have affective disorders, anxiety, depression. Um, They might have mood disorders or 
Um, so the understanding was that in order to do appropriate treatment with this population, that you also have to include individual psychotherapy as a modality and as part of their treatment plan. So actually people were, you know, the, I, I found, I, I found uh, that there were a lot of um, wonderful caseworkers at the program who were really open to learning and they were excited to have, you know, to have me on board and I was very excited to perhaps make my little contribution to the program. Okay. Go ahead. Oh, that's it. Okay. You uh, do a lot of work with artists and young people, and how did you get involved with that? Tell me a little bit about what that's like. Sure. Um, you know, before I got into um, into graduate school, I was uh, an active, active musician, and um, I was on the alternative scene, and I lived in the world of uh, performers. A lot of my friends were and still are professional musicians, photographers, artists. And I, you know, I um, wanted to do something that kind of bridged these two worlds that I was involved in. You know, it was uh, exciting for me to kind of apply some of the things that I was learning in school and I, I was learning in the field to the world that I really thought I understood and had a pulse on. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that there is this connection between uh, the music world and the counterculture and young adults. So it seemed to, to me to be a natural fit. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, and how do you uh, how do you do harm reduction therapy with this population? What what do you work on? Well, it's um it's really interesting that that you should ask uh that question. I I think um um in in kind of thinking about our discussion tonight, I um I I thought of uh, you know, the various musicians who have died or who have over, who overdosed. <laughs> and I thought about people like uh, Kurt Cobain. I thought about Michael Jackson, uh, Whitney Houston, Amy Winehouse. And I wondered whether they were ever exposed to this particular approach to treatment. Uh, or if they had been referred to these abstinence-based uh, 12-step programs or to something like, you know, Dr. Drew's clinic, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what that must have felt like for them. And if they had not been exposed to harm reduction, you know, and um, whether their life stories may have turned out differently. Now, in saying that, you know, I recognize that I'm kind of like a Monday morning quarterback, uh, but I do believe that this is a legitimate question to ask. And, 
I thought about, um, I went back and I um, I reread um, Danny Goldberg's book on bumping into, called Bumping Into Geniuses, My Life mm-hmm. Inside the Rock and Roll Business, and particularly the chapter on Kurt Cobain. And I was struck by a passage that I want to share with you, and I realize that I haven't answered your question yet, but I'm kind of, you know, if you bear with me, I'm kind of setting it up. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, in the passage um, that I want to share with you, uh, I believe this may have happened two weeks before Kurt Cobain took his life. Um, Personal friends, his manager, Danny Goldberg, and an interventionist, you know, really well-intentioned people, I think. Um, and the interventionist, somebody who was steeped in AA, planned and executed this intervention. So the passage in the book goes like this. The interventionist approached him and did the AA rap about the fact that he had been where Kurt was and knew what he was going through and added, Think of your daughter. Kurt got really angry looking at him and said, you don't know me and you don't know anything about me. And then Kurt snapped at me, meaning his manager. I'm not going to talk to this bleep. He went upstairs to go to the bathroom and he called me up, his manager, urgently to come upstairs. He indignantly told me that one of his friends had taken his pharmaceuticals from his bathroom and was flushing them down the toilet. I knew that she was just trying to do something to help. Kurt shouted that the only way he would trust anyone is if he found someone himself, not through anyone with an agenda. That's a great word. Um... And the poor guy was so freaked out and surrounded by well-meaning people totally and terribly alone. I mean, that's heartbreaking, right? That Mm -hmm. all these people really want to help. And the way they intervene spikes someone's feelings of helplessness, powerlessness, hopelessness, paranoia, depression, and anxiety, right? And he was intelligent enough to say, I want to find someone who will not impose an agenda on me. So that's step number one in working with this population. You know, Kurt told us, um, get our agendas out of the way you know, and really be open to hear and feel musicians and young people on a deep level. And when we hear and connect with them on a deep level, they will tell us what they want from treatment, you know. And uh, that's an initial step. Um, You know, that creates a therapeutic alliance. And then we can have the discussion around 
how they use substances and when they use substances and the ex- which substances they use and to what extent. You know, then we can begin to explore some of those things in a gentle, non-intrusive, supportive way. Um, and they begin to share with us why, at that point, why it is that they use substances, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I found out a lot of things about why they use substances and how they use substances, some that I would like to share with you. Yes, please. You know, artists often talk about, you know, using substances to facilitate, you know, the creative process, right? Mm-hmm. To help enhance that experience and even sometimes address blocks uh, in creativity. Um, and, you know, there's, they've shared with me that there's these intense emotional states associated with a creative process. They need to dig deep and delve into dark areas of their experience. Um, And oftentimes they can feel overwhelming. So initially they use the substance to get to that place, right, out of which Mm -hmm. they create. And then they may use substances to kind of uh, shore themselves up. Um, so that they can return to other aspects of their lives and able to fulfill other responsibilities and roles. Um, You know, roles, friends, boyfriends, parents, song uh, performers. Um, They also use substances and musicians and actors in particular to uh, regulate performance anxiety, um, enhance the rush of the performance, and also to deal with a post-performance letdown or crash. So it takes Mm -hmm. a lot of adrenaline to be on stage. And when they come off stage, you know, they crash. Um, so um, they may also use um, uh, substances to uh, manage various pressures of um, uh, increasingly, I think, complex business transactions, you know, dealing with managers, dealing with booking agents, dealing with, you know, now social media, um and being on the road all the time, you know, it's, it's hard work. And it's an extremely competitive field uh, with a uh, uh, high difficulty of breaking in and making a living and feeling, you know, a sense of worth and self-esteem uh, by making it as a musician, however that's defined by the individual. Um, and in you know in the, in the, in the having the con this this conversation you know we also talk about the cons you know are there mm-hmm. is there a down a downside to the drug the drug use after all I most people come into treatment because either 
others are beginning to notice um, some things about their functioning or they themselves, if they're, you know, in contemplation, right, they've mm-hmm. articulated for themselves that perhaps there may be an issue with their substance use. So, you know, they begin to talk about compromised performance. You know, initially, you know, I was taking, you know, amphetamines to stay up all night or cocaine to be creative. I can't do that anymore because it actually is blocking off my creativity, you know, and I can't focus any longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they miss deadlines. They don't show up for recording sessions or if they show up, you know, they're 10 hours late. You know, they get themselves into legal issues um, and, you know, interpersonal difficulties. And we begin, we really begin to open this stuff up and observe it and, and talk about it. And, you know, some of them also have, you know, a history of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and the substance initially is used to deal with these painful emotional experiences that have been dissociated from the trauma, but in uh, as they get into problematic um, patterns of substance use, what they find themselves is that they're repeating this trauma. You know, this time they're repeating it with a substance. So those are some of the things that we work on. Um, and, you know, this is a long-term process, as you can imagine. Um, and we also oftentimes talk about coping skills. You know, are there alternative things that they can be doing to help them deal with some of these anxieties and, and some of these pressures? You know, if you're on the road, you know, what are you going to do um, when you've had five or six drinks? Are you going to get behind that wheel? If you're an indie artist who's also serving as a roadie, or are you going to designate someone to drive a van? You know, those are some <laughs> things that we can be talking about. Uh, concrete uh, approaches, concrete interventions that they can use to minimize harm. So you talk about making a plan to stay safe and to avoid problems. Exactly, exactly. That uh, enters in the conversation. And that's part of the work that we do. You know, our work is multifaceted. We both work on the here and now, and as the patient becomes more and more ready, we can delve into some of the genetic factors and some of the dynamic factors that may be driving the problem. Yes. So you mentioned some. You mentioned uh, alternative coping skills, and I think this is really important for a lot of people. So, can you give me some examples of some non-chemical ways that people can cope with, you know, their emotions or things around them? Sure. Um, you know, one way that people can begin to. Um, begin to manage their emotions is by um, using mindfulness skills, right? Something Mm -hmm. is happening, and I just had an idea, 
but I want to get smashed. I don't know what's happening to me, right? But I'm aware that I want to turn whatever it is that is occurring outside of my awareness into action mode, right? Mm -hmm. So by utilizing mindfulness, by encouraging someone to try to be in the moment with their emotions and and attach a signifier to their emotion, we can begin to slow down the process, you know, from the time someone gets the urge to drink to the time where they actually pick up to drink or to use substances, right? Mm -hmm. So some people may say, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I feel drained after the performance, or I feel like a failure because I can't create. You know, that's an initial step, right? They've Mm -hmm. turned their attention to some of these difficult emotions that might be driving the behavior. What can I do now? Well, let's just observe it. Let's observe the emotion. Um, on an in, on um, how intense is the emotion um, on a scale of zero to ten? What happens to that intensity over time as you begin to sit with the emotion? Does it wax and wane? Does it stay, you know, at the most intense level possible? Um, And as you're beginning to do this, how are you feeling, right? So we're beginning to develop this strategy of surfing the urge, putting a name to the emotion that is driving the urge. We are uh, assigning it a numerical value and intensity. Um, And we're observing to see what happens to that intensity level over time. So that's one, one intervention that we can use, one skill set that we can use. And What I like to say, you know, oftentimes what I say to patients that I work with is, you know, behaviors that we're trying to learn, right, are new behaviors. And uh, people learn them um, and apply them um, at a different pace, right? And I encourage them to give themselves time to practice these behaviors so that they can internalize them and learn them. Um, oftentimes what I what I get is, Dr. Pia doesn't work, and I'm curious about that. You know, um, I reflect back to them that it may not work or it feels that it doesn't work, and I encourage them to maybe try it again, you know, and rehearse these behaviors um, and oftentimes if they stick with it, um, they begin um, to feel that 
these coping skills work. Um, other coping skills that we might work on are breathing exercises, right? Um, mm-hmm. I encourage them to seek out uh, as quiet a place as they can prior to a performance. Give themselves five to ten minutes to do some breathing exercises that we work on in in the office. Um, and we also uh, work with visualization techniques whereby um, I encourage them to um, visualize getting on stage, setting up, uh, making themselves feel comfortable, um, getting their, uh, you know, putting on their guitar or adjusting the microphone, how the microphone has to be, and actually visualizing themselves uh, performing well, right? So they Mm -hmm. have this image now of what it will feel like from the moment when they first get on stage to the moment they strike the first chord or sing, you know, the the first word, the first lyrics, or speak the first line in the play. Okay, that's really interesting. I think we are running out of time now. We're actually okay. in, record, we're in recording mode now, but uh, it will be all in the archive. I want to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Dr. John Passianis. Ken, thanks so much for having me. You know, I, I realized that we got so caught up in talking about my work with artists that we really didn't get a chance to talk about the work that I do with young adults. And perhaps, you know, we could do this again. Oh, it sounds Uh good to me. I've had quite a few people on here uh, for uh, repeat performances to, uh, you know, cover more issues. So it sounds good to me. Thanks a lot, Ken. uh, You're welcome. And everyone, uh, stay tuned. Uh, Come in next week, next Thursday. A uh, week from a uh, week from this coming Thursday, we will have Marlene Ryle, who will be talking about dual diagnosis, co-occurring disorders, and smoking cessation too, probably. So uh, we'll see you all next week, and everyone, good night.